Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Clayton Gerard. My pronouns are he, him. And today I'm here with Dr. B. Kaminga, author of Transgender Refugees and the Imagined South Africa, Bodies Over Borders and Borders Over Bodies. Transgender Refugees and the Imagined South Africa tracks the conceptual journeying of the term transgender from the global north where it originated, along with the physical embodied journeying of transgender asylum seekers from countries within Africa to South Africa and considers the interrelationships between the two. The term transgender transforms as it travels, taking on meaning in relation to bodies, national homes, institutional frameworks, and imaginaries. This study centers on the experiences and narratives of people that can be usefully termed gender refugees gathered through a series of life story interviews. It is the argument of this book that the departures, border crossings, arrivals, and perceptions of South Africa for gender refugees have been both enabled and constrained by the contested meanings and politics of this emergence of transgender. This book explores through these narratives the radical constitutional legal possibilities for transgender in South Africa, the dissonances between the possibilities of constitutional law and the pervasive politics and logics of binary sex gender within South African society. This book also just won the South African Academy of Sciences Humanities Book Award in the Emerging Researcher category. So thank you so much for being with me here today, Dr. Kaminga, and congratulations on the new award. Thank you so much. Yeah, to begin the interview, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So I, I mean, the book sums up a lot of the work that I do. I'm a a research fellow at the Institute for Cultural Inquiry in Berlin at the moment um, and a research associate at the African Center for Migration in Johannesburg at the University of the Witwatersrand. I am a trans person myself from South Africa. My work focuses broadly on gender identity and expression across the African continent. Um, And in recent years, that has led to a greater focus on asylum and migration, uh, partly because uh, I recognize that a lot of my community were having to leave or flee or people were coming into South Africa, depending on what their needs were in terms of security. Um, so yeah, I kind of wear two hats. I, I work on migration and refugee issues. Uh, and then I also write about other trans experiences like legal gender recognition and challenges to the state. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for that um, introduction. And so I really enjoyed reading this book and the ways that you kind of weave together both of those interests that you just mentioned. Um, But to start off, would you be willing to tell us about how this book came about for you? 
Sure. So um, this book was my PhD. I was uh, doing my, I was on a scholarship and doing my master's overseas and I really missed home and my community. Um, and I was really struggling with my own kind of gender stuff. So I um, decided that rather than doing my PhD overseas, I wanted to do it at home. So I went home and um, it kind of, yeah, it came out of um, working in trans studies, which I had been doing anyway, but uh, as I said, like a recognition that um, there were various ways in which the people that were coming into South Africa were trans and accessing particular things. And then there were also people that were, who had been like kind of elders that were leaving and um, claiming asylum in Europe and North America. And this word trance was kind of new at the same time in terms of the rights that it was, people were connecting to it and asking for. And so, yeah, that's kind of where my, my thinking for the book came out of. Awesome. I love hearing about how books come about for people because that kind of really just like makes it come alive a little bit more. So to start diving into the content of the book, in the introduction, you start off by saying transgender transforms as it travels, taking on meaning in relation to bodies, national homes, institutional frameworks, and imaginaries. Would you mind unpacking the importance of considering how concepts like transgender operate in places outside of the global north? Yeah, so I think, you know, when a, at the end of the day, it's just an adjective. And that that can be like, I mean, that sounds like such a kind of diminutizing way to say it, but it's a word that travels. And when it reaches the global South, in some sense, it arrives with a certain number of investments, whether that be global North funding, um, whether that be the ideas of medicalization, uh, whether that be the kind of anti-gender politics that we see tied to it now as well. Um, so it doesn't necessarily manifest in the space, but in order to claim global rights, you need to have global bodies. So trans travels in a way in order to pick up people to say we exist everywhere because that's part of the kind of global human rights claim. And I argue in the book that the people that pick it up don't necessarily, are not necessarily uh, investing in it or using it or defining it in the same way that perhaps they, people in the, in the global north would. Um, and so sometimes, and then part of that issue as well is to say, well, certain ways of being have always existed and we may not have needed to use this term trance until it came with certain things that we might have wanted to access. And so it is the things that it offers, whether that be community or uh, signaling to a wider international community or talking back to the global north that um, gets then read into it. But that also depends on uh, national space. So you know, in a country where you may not have access to affirming medical health care, that may not be part of the trans imaginary in, in the beginning. People can call themselves trans, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their imagination of that includes like a, a healthcare kind of motivated transition, because that's just not in that imaginary. So the way trans is used and what it's connected to uh, and what it's supposed to imply for communities, I think shifts in terms of the spaces it's being used in. 
Yeah, thank you for going over that. That's really insightful to hear about and also read about in the book and the ways that you introduce this topic. Um, so moving from the introduction to chapter one, you talk about how the word and category transgender itself started to emerge in South Africa over the past few decades. Would you mind describing um, how you speak to the introduction of this word and how certain forces like media, the state, NGOs, and their funders were involved in the introduction of the category of transgender? Yeah, I mean, I love, this is like, uh, I think this is probably like my favorite chapter in the book because I enjoy the more historical stuff because it kind of feels sort of like a detective pulling strands together. Mm -hmm. So South Africa has had... Um, like access to affirming health care since the 1970s. Um, and partly that was because the apartheid state um, kind of really supported transition because they imagined it as a cure for homosexuality. So it wasn't really about trans people or transsexual people at that time. The state really saw homosexuality as a kind of suffering of the wrong gender in the wrong body, like a heterosexual framing. And so it was very supportive of providing affirming healthcare. Um, and so that kind of took place from, from the 70s all the way into the early 90s. There were, of course, some issues with uh, traditional like uh, kind of white conservative churches who were like well trans women can't marry cisgender men and th those challenges arose but the state was very supportive of this idea and then people at the time I mean we have some evidence that uh, gay people accessed affirming health care because they felt under pressure to and that it would fix things we have evidence of experiments happening in the military with um, uh, recruits who were assumed to be gay. So they were secretly like given pills, then told them they were told that uh, would um, fix them, but the pills were actually hormones. Um, and so there's kind of a weird moment between the seventies and nineties. And then when in that time, we did have small groups of people who referred to themselves as cross-dressers or transsexuals or transvestites. And transsexuals were certainly figuring out how to use this system in their, in their favor. Um, in the 90s, that was all uh, put to a stop and was seen as kind of this like um, archaic practice of apartheid South Africa. So for 10 years, from mid-1990s to the mid-2000s, we didn't have any access to like state-affirmed affirming healthcare. And in that time, because South Africa was a new democracy, this other thing started happening where we, it was assumed the country could be a kind of example on the African continent for, for rights. And if we could litigate and end sodomy laws um, and start to enshrine rights in the constitution and protections, then that might provide an example on the African continent that could be taken to other countries and a kind of uh, lit a litigatory model could be followed in terms of accessing rights or at least ending the kind of uh, imposition of penal codes in countries that still had them. What that meant that though was that money arrived under the banner of LGBT. And because that's what the rights language was at the time. So LGBT money arrived, organizations that wanted to access that funding had to be LGBT identified. And no one at that time had a T 
in their organization. But of course, to access money, you're going to speak the language of money. So people were started to call themselves LGBT organizations. Um, and so this T starts appearing tacked on to LGB and at the same time, there is a group of people who were the transsexuals of the late 80s who had lost access to, um, you know, the state changing their documents that were also agitating for access. And eventually these terms, this word, the T on the end, and these people start to meet each other and you get a kind of circulation. And I mean, of course, we've had in like indigenous populations, um, of people that you know cross gender or presented in particular ways that we might now call transgender, I, I'm I'm hesitant to do that kind of thing, but um, the term certainly starts to circulate in the '90s, and eventually a group of people start tying themselves to this word, especially in the early 2000s when they start to say, okay, we. Uh, need legal gender recognition. We did have it before. Uh, a document appears that was written in the late 80s um, that kind of um, stood on the Minister of Justice's desk for 10 years and it kind of gave away what the apartheid state was, it, like gives you a clear indication of the apartheid state practice because it was um, the title of the act was a reorientation of um, sexual, a reassigning of sexual orientation. Um, and so this act is produced in the mid 2000s and immediately the emergent T comes in and says, guys, you, you can't in a democracy be saying that you're going to reinstate legislation from apartheid and a study from apartheid. And you're telling people in a country where you've now rescinded sonomy and you have protections for sexual rights that you are now going to be basically reorientating sexuality. That's kind of antithetical to uh, democratic states with, with rights. So the law gets changed and a reg an organization gets registered at the same time. And so we then start to see uh, transness visibly circulate. Awesome. Thank you for that overview. I find especially the NGO and funding part to be extremely fascinating, just how those kinds of um, categories and concepts just like permeate throughout the globe because of the funding that's available through yeah. NGOs. Um, so that's really fascinating. And I appreciated all the work that you did to kind of elucidate that flow of funding um, along with the introduction of the category transgender. So um, moving on, one of the um, actual case studies that you prevent, presented is of is the story of an individual named Tiwange Chimbalonga. And you talk about her experience and how it was interpreted in different ways throughout the world in order to fit into different transnational LGBT human rights issues. Um, would you mind sharing briefly just part of her story and kind of lay the groundwork of the tensions that were at play? Yeah. So in uh, 2010, uh, Tuwanga is from uh, Malawi. Uh, it was it blew up quite widely in the news. Uh, Tawanga Chimbalanga and Stephen Mungenza, um had a engagement party, um, and they were arrested um, and accused of being gay. 
and um, it made worldwide news. The um, Ban Ki-moon got involved, um, who was with the UN at the time, and eventually they, they were both pardoned. But um, what emerged in the kind of conversations, and we've seen this now often over the last few years, is that Tawanga just kept laughing at this question of where this accusation that she was gay because she said, I'm just a woman, I'm a woman, I'm a woman. And her life story kind of uh, affirms that in that she was, she says she was raised as a girl um, in her village. Her uncle, who was the chief, um, protected her if anyone, um, you know, it was kind of rude to her about it or suggested that she wasn't a girl slash a woman. Um, she lived and worked as a woman at a, I think it was a local hotel. Um, and so at the time of her arrest, this accusation of her being homosexual um, was really out of touch with who she was in the world and the representation of what uh, on, on the face of it seemed like a heterosexual relationship rather than a homosexual relationship. Um, they were of course both pardoned and Stephen's family apparently organized, uh, he quickly married a cisgender woman um, and uh, disappeared from the scene. Um, but to Wange, it was more difficult because she just kept saying, I'm a woman. Like, what must I do now? I'm not going to change. I'm, I'm not performing homosexuality. Like, I can't stop being who I am. And so she became a very visible person in Malawi. Um, and it became quite difficult to keep her safe. Now, during the court case, um, before the pardon happened, um, and there, there are various rumors of what happened, but the court case was definitely one in which it tried to present um, the two of them as in a homosexual relationship and fight the court battle from the kind of the angle of the um, of sodomy rather than and unnatural acts rather than acknowledging her womanhood. And on the one hand, you can understand that because it's 2010, it's quite a difficult argument to make at the time. There's not a lot of groundwork around education. Um, I think international donors and NGOs, much like South Africa in the early 90s, saw this as an opportunity to kind of wedge in a legal argument that they might win on the basis of homosexuality and extend rights. And, and that being the kind of broader project um, meant that perhaps, you know, that's the route that they went for. But there was a kind of pushback from trans organizations, particularly in Southern Africa, who were like, but this is a trans woman and you can't be doing this. Um, and I mean, there's some weird stuff that happened around it. Apparently, Peter Tatchell, the UK uh, activist, went to Malawi and he visited her and he kept asking her in her cell, like, he says he kept asking her, but like, are you trans? As though that was ever a word that she would have used for herself or needed to use for herself. So after the um, after they were pardoned, um, it became quite clear that Tuanga was not safe. And um, so she was moved with the help of Amnesty International um, and a couple of other global um, LGBT NGOs to South Africa, where she still lives today. 
Um, and she was given asylum, I mean, refugee status pretty quickly. Uh, and she was assisted by a trans organization in South Africa, which is kind of the irony of the whole thing, the denial of her um, her being a woman until the moment that she arrives in South Africa and she needs to be handed over to someone. Then they're like, oh, it's a trans organization's responsibility now. But during this whole time, um, Tiwanga has never used the word trans for herself. She just kept saying, I'm a woman. And she only starts to use trans for herself after arriving in South Africa and receiving support from this trans organization, needing community and trying to fit into kind of trans community. So I think she is a really, um, a re it's a, I mean, it's a horrible story and she has, I mean, she still struggles to this day, particularly given xenophobic and transphobic issues in South Africa. But on the one hand, uh, Tiwange is a really, uh, interesting insight into what it is that we think language is supposed to do for people and what uh, rights around persecution on the basis of gender mean and whether someone needs to take up a term to describe their womanhood to be able to access protection. Yeah, I found that especially interesting. And one of the quotes in that section of the book, you question what if bodies outside the global north did not readily accept these terms like transgender and these rational principles linking public life and the project of social justice? Would you mind reflecting a little bit more broadly based on other participants that you talked with in your research about these possibilities that folks like Tuwange bring and that their experiences reveal when they're not just um, adhering to these categories of the global north? Sure. I mean, I think that what they kind of reveal is that is the real challenge of like what it is that we mean by gender identity and expression and whether it is that cisgender people own those categories and uh, the rest of us have to add on words to be able to access them. And for a lot of the participants, um, and I think we see this increasingly in the world now at the moment anyway, um, for a lot of participants, trans was used strategically. So it was necessary in particular situations, um, but especially for those people that um, passed as their desired gender, um, binary passing, um, the need to use trans was faded over time or stopped entirely. Um, I think I, I use the story in particular of a trans man who contacted me from, he's from Tanzania living in South Africa. And he, through community, had heard about my work and asked me to come and see him. And I'd never met him before. Um, and we met and he, his first words to me were, you look at me and I'm your average guy on the street. And you are only talking to me right now because I choose to talk to you. And I'm telling you who I am, but I don't, he, he was like, I don't use this word trance. Like what for? Like, it's, I'm just a dude in the world right now. And like, I'm carrying on with my life. And I think that that was like, really, I was just like, well, okay. So, I mean, for this guy, it's just like, 
you know, he's a man in the world and he's living his life. But he was like, I also want people to have rights, particularly trans women. And I don't want people to have to go through what I've been through. So I am going to tell you my trans story. But and then at the end of the interview, he was like, thanks a lot. Um, I don't suppose you'll ever see me again. I was like, okay. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. So to continue along the lines of just the migration and refugee aspect of this work, would you mind discussing the term that you present of gender refugee and how you use it throughout the book and like who is considered a gender refugee? Sure. So I think with gender refugee, and I have kind of moved away from it since, although I, I still like think about it as having some value, what I wanted to do was kind of destabilize this idea that a person has to say that they're transgender um, to somehow make themselves visible to an asylum system. Whereas the, you know, the persecution I understand transgender people experiencing is on the basis of gender expression. It really I don't think it has to do with them being transgender. Transgender is just the way that the words that they use to make themselves visible to the world. And so my wanting to use gender refugee was a way to kind of destabilize this category of gender, um, which often in, I mean, not only in asylum and migration, but often is used as a like stand in for women right, and cisgender women. And so, so when we have programs for gender, it's about cisgender women. Or if we have um, GBV, gender-based violence rarely includes trans people or LGBT people. That's kind of been a, a, a newer development, but gender-based violence is supposed to talk about the violence women experience, cisgender women. And so when using this term in a book that is called transgender refugees in the imagined South Africa. I really wanted to push back at what we think this term gender is supposed to be doing and what it does in relation to a system of asylum and human rights, rather than saying, well, the protections that these people are supposed to get can only be, so Tiwange must say she's trans in order to access protection. Yeah, that's really insightful. Thank you for speaking to that. And I want to continue along this line of talking about migration and refugee status. And it's really interesting how this has an overlap with a lot of trans studies work. You talk about how migration has been used in trans scholarship as a metaphor, but you take this really seriously with the example of forced migration of gender refugees in your book, discussing both the gender border and the border of nation states. Can you talk about how this reconceptualizes transgender in both literal and metaphorical ways? Sure. So, I mean, I like this question because it's also some of the work that I'm thinking about now in terms of my like new project. The history of transness and the stories that we have in autobiographies because the wider public is very interested in trans autobiographies they sell well trans memoir sells well 
many of them, in fact, the vast majority, and particularly the early trans autobiographies were about white women who transitioned and who traveled from point A to point B. And it was often referred to in, a t in terms of metaphor. So this was a migration and you would come home to oneself as well as coming home to like the body you're always meant to be in. And in those early biographies, it is really about, I mean, people were going to Morocco, they were going to Denmark, uh, they were going to the Netherlands, and then they would come back to America, for instance. And so there is a sense in which, you know, the words that are being used, migration, borderlands, home, um, are already embedded within how we understand transness and transition. And I mean, it's, it, colloquially, it's often referred to as like the trans travel narrative or the trans trajectory. And what I wanted to do in the book was think about, so but what about the people who have to travel and who cannot return? And what do we do with people who actually have to physically journey in order to be able to transition? So people I work with now in my new project talk about transition in exile. So people who cannot do uh, the safe return where home is actually elsewhere and not in the country of origin. And I think that that, um, again, kind of speaks back to this idea of what trans does and how it travels, because these people in becoming refugees or migrants pick up this term trans and take it with them. And they arrive at a border and say, this is what I am. I'm asking you for protection on the basis of this is what I am in this word. So the circulation happens kind of anew, but it also, um, in, and we see this more and more in kind of studies on uh, what happens in asylum systems, there's a way in which whatever trans meant in a country of origin, it means something else when you arrive at a border and have to speak to a, an asylum official who wants transness to be a particular thing and for you to behave in particular ways. So that idea of, of what transness is in the global north then becomes far more salient and you can have these kind of two understandings of the term meet each other at the border of the, the nation state. So, I mean, as a, an example, there was a trans woman recently who was denied refugee status in Greece um, because she crossed the Mediterranean in at not dressed as a woman, but as a man in disguise. So she's a trans woman. She didn't dress as a woman on her journey across the Mediterranean because it's very dangerous being on a small boat with people that are not exactly open to LGBT rights. But when she arrived in Greece and claimed asylum, they said, but you're not a trans woman because you didn't, uh, you didn't cross the Mediterranean dressed as a woman. And that's just like the kind of ridiculousness of this idea of there are ways to perform transness at the border that uh, are embedded in asylum systems in a particular way and there are ways to be trans in other spaces that are not that idea of transness yeah that's really thought-provoking to think about and such a wild scenario um one of the main focal points of your book is that South Africa is kind of a unique place within Africa that a lot of um, trans folks migrate to, to kind of have better 
acceptance and community. Can you explain some of the uniqueness of South Africa's constitution when it comes to the category and the experience of transgender and how sexual orientation is read differently? And how does this break away from the, quote, trajectory of its European colonial antecedents, unquote, that you discuss in your book? Um, So sexual orientation or sexuality and gender identity or gender, sexuality and gender are protected characteristics in the South African constitution, which was a first at the time. And the kind of expansive definition of sexual orientation um, includes transsexuality. And of course, uh, partly that's a problem because transsexuality isn't a sexual orientation in the way we understand it now. There is an understanding in the early days of the development of the, the South African constitution that we needed as much as possible to move away from identitarian language and try and keep categories as open as possible. So there is an argument to be made that the protection around sexual orientation is really about whether you're experiencing persecution on to on the basis of the sex towards you, which you are orientated. So there is a way that we might think of it also actually protecting heterosexual people. If there was a massive lobby against heterosexuality and people were being persecuted for being straight, then sure, like, yeah, <laughs> you could be, you could find a way to be protected under the South African constitution. The inclusion of transsexuality meant that there is like a doorway for trans people um, and a kind of inclusion that can be imagined as with the protection of on, on the basis of gender and, and gender has been used over the last uh, like just under 20 years, I think it is now to um, protect trans people in South Africa. But what it did mean was that you know, the many of the participants in the book spoke about hearing about South Africa in different ways, whether it was that was through like Brenda Fassi or uh, their parents talking about how terrible it was that South Africa was going to protect LGBT people or their churches um, kind of praying for the devil in South Africa. And in those ways, they received information about the possibility of protection. And then looking into it, I mean, South Africa has provided, we have state provided affirming healthcare all the way through the 90s and the 2000s, even when the law didn't necessarily um, allow for legal gender recognition, we still had access to affirming healthcare through the government. And so there was a way in which trans people could see themselves being protected and also having the possibility to access affirming healthcare. And the way the South African constitution does that, I think is really beautiful and really interesting. And it hasn't been um, harnessed to its fullest capabilities, um, but I think that there's potential. Yeah, thanks for going over that. That was extremely interesting to read about just because I didn't know anything about South Africa's constitution before picking up your book and then just to read about the different ways that um, these words and concepts have been, um, what's the word that I want to use? I don't know, used differently is 
really interesting to think about. Um, so one of the conversations you talk about is kind of the experience of um, gender refugees and trans folks coming to South Africa and their experience trying to navigate seeking asylum in South Africa. And you mentioned kind of the idea that some people have taken up of not using gender on um, biographical and identity documentation anymore. Um, you mentioned that as biogenetic markers of identity are beginning to be utilized, some have began calling for sex and gender to be removed from identity documentation. Can you discuss some of the tensions of this possibility and how it would impact actual trans folks coming to South Africa? Sure. So, um, South Africa has a long history with um, trying to enforce people carrying identity documents of various kinds and was kind of a testing ground for, you know, the development of identity documents. And um, in the 90s, we had a green ID book that actually didn't indicate a sex or gender marker on it. It did with the, we have an ID number with a number in the middle, but most people don't know that the number in the middle, depending on what they are, equals M or F. And um, then with the smart card ID, which kind of rolled out, I think, in 2015 onwards, maybe a little bit earlier, we started capturing bio information and increasingly we've captured more bizarre forms of bio information. But you know, gender is a deeply unstable category to try and judge a person by or to say that that's what we're going to build state security around. Um, and so there has been a push to say, well, you're capturing all this other stuff, retina scans, fingerprints, you know, you don't need gender markers on our identity documents anymore. And more recently, the push has been to say we also... We don't even we don't even want just the gender marker removed, which suddenly appeared on the smart card, but we also want randomized ID numbers, which makes a lot more sense. Um, for most trans people, um, so two things have kind of happened. On the one hand, um, lot we know that lots of trans people in South Africa who are citizens have not switched to the smart card ID who have the green ID book have not switched to the smart card because they don't want that marker on their documents so there is something to say we have some evidence that there is a preference for not having a marker on a document um trans people who are refugees and asylum seekers have always had documents that indicate a gender marker um that's just been standard practice and that is standard practice around around the world there is no way for them in south africa to change their gender markers at present even if they get refugee status um and it, it, the only way that might be possible is if they get um it's like a, I can't remember what the term is, but it takes like eight years. So they would need to be captured on the South African population register. That's not possible at the moment. There is a move to create another register which would capture refugees, which would also allow for gender market change. One of the reasons the South African state, or at least officials on the front line say they aren't willing to provide 
trans people who are refugees with documents that reflect who they are is because they believe and I I, I mean it's a completely uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for um farcical argument but that they would be naturalizing the person by accident so if you you know Tewanga for instance her documents in Malawi say male if we gave her documents in South Africa saying she was a woman their argument is well we'd be creating we'd be acknowledging a citizen that doesn't exist anywhere else and so then we'd be accidentally naturalizing her because only we say that she's a woman and only we acknowledge that this woman exists um which is ridiculous um so in the book i talk about how we might reach a point where and there are you know in the netherlands they've started uh experiments around like if what happens when we start removing gender from uh documents what happens when we start because we do it just naturally right every time there's a form it says male or female you have no idea why that information needs to be captured it just like everyone thinks it makes sense you want name surname male or female and once you challenge people on that, so we asked them recently, uh, the Department of Home Affairs in South Africa, why did you put M or F on the new smart card? And they were like, we don't, we don't know. It just, see, you know, it's just it's standard practice. And uh, once it was challenged, they were like, yeah, of course, we can absolutely remove it. We don't even need, we don't use that data anyway. Like, it's just not necessary. Um so yeah, there is a kind of move to revert back to a time when we didn't have it on documents and a desire to have a um, a kind of gender neutral ID number, which also just makes sense for a population long term, because you're basically narrowing down the number, the sequence of numbers you can have for the size of the population that you have, if you're, if you're going to say these specific numbers have to be this way. Yeah, that's super interesting. And just... Um an issue that I haven't thought about too much, but just, you know, when people are coming to a different country for asylum and the need for the documentation to match between the different countries and stuff, it's such a complex issue. But um, I really appreciate the conversation of weighing these kinds of pros and cons and the needs for different nuances in the discussion. So thank you for going over that. One of the final parts that I wanted to talk about the book is um, indicated in the title where you talk about the imagined South Africa, but this idea of South Africa being a place of inclusivity and a possibility for community and such um, that some people pursue and then some people don't kind of buy into that imaginary. In chapter six, you say it is the participants who avoid the asylum system altogether and are able to pass as their desired, though normative, binary gender within South African society who have, to some degree, exited the borderlands, finding their community to be humanity. Can you talk about the possibility of becoming part of the imaginary South Africa for gender refugees to attain rights and what it looks like for those who forego the asylum system altogether? Yeah. So, you know, South Africa, for all its laws, is still very much like any other country. People on the street make common sense readings about gender. How you present is how I'm going to treat you. I think there's a, 
particular kind of history of um, colonial kind of manners. So you get a, a lot of like sirs and ma'ams when you're when you're eating out, which I don't experience as much in other countries off the African continent, across the African continent, particularly in countries that were uh, colonized by the British, a lot of sir and ma'aming. South Africans read gender just like any other country. So people who present normatively and uh, live a kind of binary gendered life and um, kind of avoid or opt out of the asylum system eventually live a far better life than those that are trans and kind of stuck in the asylum system and, um, you know, they're opportunities in South Africa are diminished and destabilized the longer they're in the asylum system because although you can theoretically you're supposed to be able to get a job as an asylum seeker it's very difficult because employers think of you as kind of transitory um, the status of your asylum is the fact that you're trans which means that thing always has to be out front you can't um you can't just if you're binary identified and you can't just live your life because part of your life is orientated always towards this thing about your transness whereas there are um i think at least two people in the book the a Tanzanian trans man who I spoke about earlier, who, you know, he considered the asylum system, but he thought, yeah, it's not for me. I'm going to get a student visa. I'm going to study. I will make it work. And he's hustled, um, you know, and no one, no one in his life knows he's trans and that's the way he wants it to be. And as because of that, he feels that he doesn't really struggle as much as, as trans people because everyone just treats him as a regular dude. Um, the other story is of the um, the trans woman from Central Africa who um, access affirming healthcare in South Africa is a trans woman um, is like a beautiful trans woman is passing and she's like okay I was an asylum seeker I'm not going to do that anymore goes to the consulate of the country on her border because colonial borders often separated communities that were exactly the same community and says, oh, I'm from this community. There are wars in that area. So the documents have been lost. She proves that she's from that community on the basis of language, understanding particular cultural elements. And so they say, okay, fine. We recognize your documents have been lost, so we're going to issue you new documents. And so she then becomes a national from the country next door. But they give her documents as a woman because what they see in front of them is a woman. So she then has these documents that say she's a woman from whatever country. And she's like, I don't need asylum anymore because I can use this document to navigate my life, whether I want to study or apply for a visa. Um, and there's no need for me any longer to keep using this thing called trance to get protection because I now am a woman with women's documents rather than a woman with documents that say I'm a man, which makes everything really difficult. So yeah, the the people that can get out of the asylum system, because asylum just keeps you in a, in a loop, right? You 
have to renew your permit. You have to queue with other nationals because nationals queue, different countries queue on different days. Every time you go, you have to out yourself because they're calling you by the dead name on your document or somebody laughs and says, oh, but you're a man. So there are many ways in which your, your life is restricted by what is a system that should actually protect you and enhance your life rather than diminish your rights. And for the people who can hustle and navigate on their own without turning to the state for protection, those people are doing way better. And some of the people in the book now are still asylum seekers. And like the research I did, I started in, in 2012. There are people who are 10 years down the line still sitting with asylum seeker documents without a decision being made. And I mean, that's horrific. Yeah, definitely. It's such a complicated issue. So I appreciate you talking through that and your work in the book, discussing all the various complexities of it all and the ways that people try to make a life and make a world for themselves in the face of these um, very complicated boundaries and borders and obstacles to navigate. So um, Dr. Kaminga, this has been a great conversation. So I really appreciate you joining me and our just being able to discuss your book. It's such an important work. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Clayton. I really, really enjoyed this uh, conversation and it's so nice to meet you. Yeah, you as well. Thank you.